Join me in the book of Romans, would you please? We're in Romans chapter 14. The book of Romans chapter 14. If you're visiting with us, we're in a series that we're going and we're talking about United We Stand. And we're talking and pulling out a variety of different verses and then going through those verses within their study about how to, as a congregation, be a more impacting, effective church one to another. Well, as we've been going through, we've been studying a variety of passages. The one passage that we've been focusing on last week, this week, is that in Romans 13, 14, 15. I'll explain it in a moment, but let me just remind you that there are many times when we approach the Bible that some verses are frequently quoted and frequently misused. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. There's a passage out of the Old Testament that says this, where there is no vision, the people perish. A lot of the modern um, businessmen, different people in management, they say, well, this verse teaches that if we don't have goals, if we don't have a mission statement, then our business is going to fail. Uh, that, That may be true. But that's not what this verse says. This verse doesn't have anything to do with having a plan and organization. It has to do with the Word of God. Where there is no vision, and in the Hebrew it's the idea of revelation or something given from God, some prophecy, the people perish. Look at the rest of it. But he that keeps the law, blessed is he. The idea of this text is not about business success. It's about the importance of the Word of God in your everyday life, taking it in and understanding the Word of God. There's another passage. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Well, that means if I really rely upon Christ, I can kick a field goal 99 yards. You know, I can dunk the bat, me, dunk the basketball. If I really, I'm going to make this sale. I'm just going to depend upon Christ. And it's used a lot of times in motivational speaking. And that's interesting that they would use this verse to motivate people to say, I can do anything. I just want to want it enough and just, I need to rely upon Jesus. What's really interesting is looking at the context of this verse. It doesn't have anything to do, and frankly, it has just the opposite of some of what they're trying to say. The verse in context is dealing with what if you can't do what you want to do and learning to be content if you can't do something. And Paul's writing from prison and says, I've learned to be content when I don't have and when I do have. And this is what I've learned, contentment, and I can learn that through the power of Jesus Christ to become content and satisfied with my abilities or my inabilities. There's another verse that's interesting. This one is used a lot by the Gospel of Prosperity preachers. There's several of them that are very common on TV and it's about this idea that God wants to prosper you. He wants you to have a good bank account. He wants you to have lots of clothes. He wants you to have great homes, great cars, great boats, great everything. Oh, and technology. God wants all these blessings upon you. In the context of this verse is not God promising in the idea that every single one of us is going to be rich or every one of us is going to have a successful career where we are going to be you know, on Forbes or something of that sort. That is not what this verse has to do with. Um, if, if I can quote one of my professors, he said, when you study the Bible, always remember these three principles when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Remember, context, number one. Number two, context. And number three, context. To whom was it written, why was it written, and what's it saying? This verse is written to 
specifically. I can do that. It's written specifically to the Jews who are going back into the land after the land's been devastated for all these decades. And it's a, it's a promise to one group of people, not all of us, about how I'm going to restore when you go back and your land is absolutely, it's wasted homeland, but I want you back there. It will revive. It re, re, will rebuild. There's another one. This is usually the New Testament one where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. That justifies why I can go stay home from church because there's three of us in the family, we form a church. We can go and gather at the cabin in the woods and two or three are gathered, we're a church. That's uh, you know Matthew chapter 18 and so this is a justifiable passage where there's two or three, that's it. Jesus is in the middle, we're a church. That is not what this passage talks about. That is not the idea at all even of you praying together. That's not the t- context of the passage. It is talking about those of us who at times have to go and confront a believer who is not living right, who is, who is um, shaming the name of Jesus Christ, and we're scared to death to go and talk to them. We're scared to, get to go and confront somebody because they'll get mad at us, because they might say things. And he says, listen, where there's two or three, and in that context you're going as two or three, and there's witnesses with you, we're going and we're going to confront this person. Trust in me. I will be with you. I will help you to do the task of calling my child back to a life of holiness. That's the context. That's where the verse shows up, and that's the application of the verse. There's a passage in Romans, and actually I think I have 14. It is 13. 13 verse 8. We're right next to it. It says, Oh, no man anything. This verse is used by a lot of modern preachers to say it is wrong to have a mortgage. It is wrong to have a school loan. It is wrong to have any kind of loan whatsoever because you're to owe no man anything. Okay? In the scriptures, there are throughout the Old Testament, there's references of God allowing the peoples of the Old Testament to be able to take loans, give loans, and he gives restrictions on how they're supposed to collect, how they're supposed to charge, things of that sort. So loaning and borrowing is not the issue. In the original language, it says literally, stop continuing to owe somebody. It's not about you taking a mortgage. It's about you not paying the mortgage. It's not about you having a debt. It's about you not fulfilling your debt and your obligation. That's the verse. That's the interpretation. But this isn't the only one in this passage. Romans 14, look at where we're right in the middle of this study and doing this exposition of this passage. He says, in the middle of the context, he says a certain comment down in the passage. He says, why, verse 10, are you judging your brothers? Why do you set at naught your brothers? Or you're separating from them over some of the things that we're going to be talking about. Jump down in verse 13. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore. And so this verse is jumped upon. This verse is used frequently to say it is wrong for Christians ever to make any kind of judgments. Often it shows up alongside of this verse. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. That starts, judge not lest ye be judged. Okay? And therefore we're never supposed to make any kind of, obli- uh, uh, of decision or, or make a, a judgment about some things. And usually it shows up in this type of a situation. It'll show up on signs galore in the middle of a rally where people are rallying for doing something that they want to say is okay for me to do even though it's a change in morals or change in society and it's wrong for those church related people, those Christians to have any form of judgment. We're supposed to be tolerant. We're to let anything go. If, if uh, different peoples want to live together that's their, their right. That, they can do whatever they want. If different peoples 
want to take the lives of unborn children, that's the, that we're not supposed to judge. We're not supposed to say that it's wrong to be using drugs. We're not supposed to say it's wrong to be in lifestyles that are alternative choices. We're not supposed to say it's wrong to, uh, to you know, whatever. Anything kind of goes. And the Bible says that you who go to church, you should not pass judgment because it says, judge not, lest you be judged. And so this verse is often pulled out of context. It's thrown in our face. And it's, it's not just wrong interpretation of Scripture and application. It's just foolish. Absolutely foolish. Let me see if I can do it this way. When all of a sudden we say, you, shouldn't, you and I shouldn't have an opinion. You and I who are God's people and trying to worship God, who are we to tell somebody that there's a certain lifestyle that they should live? God takes and accepts anything and everything. And besides, God should allow me to do whatever I want. I can, you know, I'm independent. How would you do that as a parent? As a parent, if your kid comes home and says, listen, I am five years old now, okay, I can do whatever I want. If I want to drive the car, I can drive the car. If I want to play in the down by the edge of the street and ride my bike into the street, you know, you can't stop me because this will infringe upon my fun. Who are you to tell me what to do? I am five years old. You as a parent would say, I would be irresponsible. Oh, by the way, our society would say, you are irresponsible if you let your kids play in the street. That they would say, you not only have the right to be able to tell your kids how to live, you have the responsibility to protect them. But the same society that says that says, God has no right to tell me how to live. It doesn't make sense to me. Let me, let me see if I can demonstrate this way. Now that I'll talk about food and get you all stirred up here, you know, before lunchtime, you go over to take your pick of, of the places you want to eat this afternoon, and you're going to order a steak burger. And the cook behind there decides, wait a minute, who are you to tell me what to do? I feel like today I'm going to cook spam. And so I'm going to send out to you a spam burger, and I'm going to cover it with things I like, guacamole, smothered in horseradish, okay, and you would go, yum, yum. That's, you, know, you are so smart to change my order. That's not what any of you would do. None of you, well, maybe one or two of you, but most of you would look and say, say listen, if you, if you put that Spam burger with a little bit of horseradish and guacamole sprinkled with some of that, you know, scrapple stuff, you know, that would, you know, you would be upset and you wouldn't go back to that business. And you would say, they have no right to change what I have ordered. But people will come to church and say, God has no right. I can change whatever he has ordered. Who is he to tell me what to do? Oh, okay, you go to the bank this week. You make a deposit. The teller feels a little bit lazy. And instead of typing in all of your numbers to your bank account, she decides, well, I'm just going to hit you know, copy and paste. And so I'm going to use the same bank account number for everyone in line. And I'm going to deposit it because it's a lot easier for me. And, you know, besides, this is, this is my job. And it just so happens to be my husband's bank account that I'm typing in. But, you know, it's okay. And you would say she has no right to make those changes. Because that's mine. That's my money. That, uh, you know, I've got this. This is mine. I owe, own this money. Well, do you realize God owns you if you're born again? God owns you. God can order you and me to do whatever. He has that right. Not only does he have that right, he has that responsibility to protect us. So he orders us. 
And he gives us a lot of commands. And so in Christianity, it should not surprise us when all of a sudden we come to church and we hear that there's a certain way to live that pleases God, that God has commanded. God in his wisdom says that, okay, and you and I need to make judgments at time to make sure that we are obeying these commands, to make sure that peoples around us are obeying the commands. And if they don't, we need to go and talk to them and show them that it's wrong. These are commands from the creator of the world that we need to be obliging. But what we need to do is we need to be, as we go and do this, we need to understand this passage a little bit more. By the way, look at chapter 14, look at verse 13, and I want you to see two commands here that are given in the same verses. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this. Do you realize what this verse is saying? Contrary to what some who would promote and say we are not supposed to judge, that's not what that verse says. The verse says we are to judge at certain times. We are not to judge at certain times. It's giving us a dual command with the same word in the same verse that judgment is appropriate and judgment at times is inappropriate. Let's talk about the appropriate times. When are we to judge? What are we to judge? Why are we to judge? That is, we're to evaluate and at times we're to say it is wrong and we're supposed to do what we can to condemn or oppose it. There are several different judgments given. I'm going to break from an expository message this morning and break to just doing more of a topical and that is let's jump and look at some other passages. I'm going to invite you to go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. While you're turning I'm going to refer to another text here in the same book of Romans. While you're turning there's, there's an idea in scripture that we're to judge false teachers and teaching. We're not supposed to accept anything and everything that comes down the pike that says in Jesus name we're to examine it. We're to look at it and at times we're to condemn certain things that are stated from the pulpit or in the name of Christianity. He says we're to judge false teachings, false teachers. And that means, by the way, when I talk biblical judgment, here's what I mean. Biblical judgment is comparing the Bible to whatever topic we're talking about. Not my ideas, not our, what our church thinks, not what the group thinks or chooses to think. What does the Bible say? So we're supposed to compare teachers who are coming down the pike. We're to compare them and their teaching with what the Word of God says about what's to be taught and how teachers are to conduct themselves. And so biblical judgment is comparing to Scripture. If it doesn't line up with Scriptures, we're to avoid it, we're to condemn it, we're to move away from it. One of those things, as we said, is, Bibli- is false teaching and teachers. In the passage that we're close to, Romans 16, it talks about that. It talks about it in the passage you just turned to. I'll catch up to you in a moment. But let me do the Romans 16 first. It says this, now I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, brothers, sisters in Christ, mark them which are causing divisions and offenses contrary to doctrine. That they are dividing the body of Christ. That they are teaching truths that are not consistent with the word of God, with the doctrines which we have been teaching, the apostle Paul and the other apostles. And he says avoid them. It is very clear that this is to be done by believers in the church of Rome that they were to do it. This is passed on to us as time goes by. Our standard is the Word of God. Not some creed that we have adopted, but the Word of God. The doctrine that has been taught in the Word of God. We're to watch out for those who would come in and change the Word of God and cause division within, the, within Christianity about what the beliefs, is, beliefs are and they would trip up people when it comes to beliefs. He talks about doing this same thing when he comes into the book of, Roman, uh, of Matthew. In Matthew, that passage 
passage that is frequently quoted in verse 1 that says, judge not lest you be judged, he goes on right after that and he talks about judging people. So you have to look at the entire context. Jesus is saying in verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, it's going to come back to you. Let's jump down a little bit further into the passage. Go to verse 15. In his same sermon he says, okay, here's the judgment you need to make. Beware of who? In, in Matthew chapter 7 verse 15, beware of false, what? He says false prophets. He says, which will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. You shall know them by what? By their fruits. Do men gather grapes from a thorn tree filled with thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither a bad tree bad fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit, it's going to be hewn down, cast in the fire. Wherefore, he says, here's your judgment, by their fruits you shall know them. He's making it very clear. There's going to be an infiltration in time of people that are corrupting the teachings that Jesus says, I'm teaching. And you're going to have to beware of them. And these people should basically, they should be cut down. They are going to be hewn down. And that's true. Since Jesus Christ has been here, there are churches here this morning that are preaching that Jesus is not really God. That he became a God. Or they are teaching that Jesus is just a good teacher. Or they are teaching the idea that Jesus may have not have been God his entire life. How foolish. How unbiblical. The Bible is so clear on it. In fact, the Bible warns about that teaching. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, judge, criminal. Try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, even at that time. He says, every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ, that is the Lord God Almighty, is come in the flesh, is not of God. This is a spirit of Antichrist. He is telling us that the spirit that we're supposed to be trying is somebody who has a spirit within them that does not conform to scriptures. He's a false teacher. It's confirming for us that in that realm when it comes to preaching and teaching there is spiritual activity. There are spiritual beings and creatures that are moving, that are guiding different individuals to say different things. And this spirit he warns about coming along he says that they are teaching doctrines that, are do, that do not uh, fit with the New Testament and by the way in 2 Timothy 4 he lists what they are. There are people who are coming along and they are teaching doctrines from the demons that include you can only eat certain foods on certain days. That include that you should not marry. That include the idea uh, of um, uh, masochism, spiritual masochism. That includes the idea of saying that we and the creatures here on earth, we are of all the same ilk and we are all the same and equal. He's saying that that is doctrines of devils. And he's warning us and saying we need to judge from that. To deny the deity of Christ and to question him at all. This is something that is just really serious by your and our, my belief system. That we're supposed to defend it. Such are the false teachers. He describes them. They are deceitful workers. They are transforming themselves, making themselves look on the outside. That's the word transform. Is not from the inside out, but from the outside. They come along, they dress, they walk, they talk, they look like us. But he says that they transfer themselves into apostles, but that shouldn't surprise you. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He tries to make himself look appealing and draws people in and he says there is no great thing that if his ministers were to do the same thing. That they would, they would look good on the outside but they have terrible, terrible teaching that will corrupt. Be careful. Be careful. Be cautious of the teaching and the teachers who would come that you listen to on the TV, you listen to on the radio, that you pick up their books, that you watch on the internet, make sure 
sure that they are comparing themselves or they, they agree with as you compare them with the Word of God. He has other passages that warn us. Though an angel or somebody else comes along and preaches a gospel that is different than the gospel of being saved by faith, he says, let that person be anathema. In the context, he's talking about anybody coming along and saying you have to do some works to get saved. You have to get baptized to get to heaven. You have to join a church to get to heaven. You have to keep certain rules to get to heaven. That is a perversion of the gospel. The gospel is very clear. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We only get to heaven by believing in Jesus Christ and asking Him to be our Savior. It is not by going to church. It is not by giving money. It is not by learning the trivia of Scripture. It is by having a faith that says, I take you, Jesus, to be my Savior because I'm a sinner and I'm condemned and you and you alone are the only one that can get me to heaven. Any alteration of that anybody changing that, he says, let them be anathema. And by the way, let's be honest about this. There's a lot of churches that have changed it. There's a lot of religions out there that are telling you, if you don't belong to our church, you're not getting to heaven. That is a perversion of the gospel. There are a lot of people out there that are saying to people, you got to get baptized, catechized, or whatever eyes, and then that will complete your salvation. That is a contrary truth to the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. Let them be anathema. He goes on, he says this, If there come any unto you that bring not this doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. He that even says, well, God bless you, you're a partaker of this evil. And he warns us, he says, you got to judge. you got to judge when people are coming. you got to determine, do they teach the truth? And if they aren't teaching the truth, you avoid them. You know what's interesting here? In this context, it's the deity of Jesus. It's the salvation work of Jesus Christ. And he says, don't let them into your home. Now, is the home your personal home where they go door to door? Or is your home in the New Testament thinking that they met in homes for church? Don't let them into your pulpit. Don't let them teach you at all. I don't know which one it is. But I know I'm supposed to be saying, hey, listen, if somebody comes along and they want to speak here, They've got to believe in the scriptures and we compare, we judge their teaching, their belief system before they walk in and they get the opportunity to teach. I've got to take the word of God, find out what they believe and do they match. If they don't match, they can't speak here. It's very clear. It's very simple that we are not supposed to let anybody and everybody get up and speak their mind. We have to make judgments to protect the integrity of the gospel, to protect the purity of the local church. And it's very clear. It's very simple. Now, it may not be popular, but this idea of ecclesiastical church separation is a biblical doctrine. It is not some baptistic quirk. It is a Bible truth that you cannot deny. We have to judge. Oh, by the way, we're supposed to judge not only that, we're to judge brothers and sisters in Christ who refuse to comply with a lifestyle to the Word of God. He says in multiple passages, like in 1 Corinthians 5, he makes it very clear, and I want to invite you to jump to that passage with me because there are some parts of this text that we need to read. 1 Corinthians, here on the other side of Romans, chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jump there with me, please. He's writing and he says, he says, it is reportedly, reported commonly, look at verse 1, amongst you that there is somebody living in sin. 
They are fornicating. They are living outside of marriage. They are, they are in a sexual relationship. And he goes on, describes it, that it is with their, with their father's wife. Is it incest? Is it that the father remarried and has a younger woman and the son has taken her for his companion? I don't know. And you don't know. But what he is saying is, this is something that even the world looks at and says, that's despicable. But you in the church, he says, you're tolerating it. You're saying that anything goes. It's okay. And who are we to judge? And he goes on and addresses that. He says, you are puffed up, verse 2, and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away. For I verily is absent in the body, but present in the spirit. I have judged already. He says, as though I were present, concerning him that has done this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of God, you need to make, take some action. Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So he deals with it, and he says, you're wrong with just putting up, tolerating, and saying, they're related to me, they're, uh, they're my friend, therefore I'm not going to say anything to them, and I'm going to show them that I love them so much that anything goes. That's wrong. That's wrong by this text. In fact, he goes on in verse 9 and he says this, I wrote unto you in the epistle before, do not fellowship with somebody who's in fornication that's in sexual immorality. He goes on and he says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, there are others, the covetous individual, the extortioner, the idolaters. The, you know, he says, you, you have to go and live in the world. You're going to rub shoulders. But, he goes on, he says, I have written unto you not to have close fellowship with them. If any man that is a brother in Christ is involved with sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, or they're this, this violent type of person, a railer, they're a drunkard or an extortioner, do not sit down and have a meal with them. For what have I to do to judge those who are outside the body of Christ? They're, they're judged you know, that's, that's not my business. But those who are within the family of Christ, we have obligation. Them that are without God judges, but we have to make a determination that says if somebody is living in an ungodly lifestyle that is starting to permeate and affect others, we've got to put them out of the body. It's called church discipline. It is not something that we like to talk about or like to practice, but there are occasions that it happens. In fact, he mentions this in several epistles. I command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I beseech you, I command you, withdraw yourself from a brother that is walking disorderly and not after the teachings. If an individual is not following the Word of God when it comes to morality, when it comes to ethics, when it comes to whatever area is of a biblical, moral, or doctrinal nature, he says, you've got to separate from that individual. He goes on and he takes, talks about it in a very pointed sense in, further in the epistle. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, have no company with him. He repeats it. That he may be ashamed. Don't count him as, as an enemy. He's your brother. But again, if they're not following the Word of God, if they're morally or doctrinally corrupting, we need to pull back from them. And I know this isn't a popular thing. I know there won't be amens this morning. I know that some of you are sitting back and saying, oh, this is too hard. This is, too hard. This is the Word of God. There are times we need to make judgments. Are we seeking to do this? No. But if they're there, we've got to, by the Word of God, make some, make some decisions and say, if somebody who is a heretic after the first or second admonition. By the way, heretic is a divisive person. It's not necessarily in this context dealing with somebody with doctrine. It is somebody who is dividing. And by the way, never in the New Testament do we read that somebody who is a false teacher be given a first or a second admonition. 
We're to separate right away. But where it's a brother or sister who is having a moral issue, there we're supposed to go and give warning on a couple occasions. So if there's somebody who is morally, here's their problem, they're divisive. After the first and second admonition you reject, knowing that he is subverting and sins condemned, the idea is they're disrupting the unity of the body. They are causing division. They are literally drawing, themselves, drawing people to themselves, trying to politic the church, trying to make individuals, uh, to, trying to make themselves stand up and be the takeover of a church or something of that sort, where probably the diatrophies in 3 John would be the example. And so he warns about those individuals. And he says, you need to pull back. So we need to make some type of judgment at times about the teaching that some are bringing, about the practice that some believers. Now in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, it warns us about this judging of brothers and sisters in Christ. It tells us, you know, in the Word of God that we don't have the right to live any old way we please. I can do anything I want. And now that I'm saved, I'm part of church, I can be shacking up with somebody. He, does, he says, that's not, that's not the case, folk. I can be doing the drugs. I can be, become a drunk. That is not the case. That is not the case. I can say whatever I want. I can do whatever. That is not the case by scriptures. God has a clear moral code that even believers are to follow. But he says that those of us who are trying to live for the word of God and you see somebody who is living some wrong lifestyle, you have to go and make a judgment. You be careful that when you go and make that judgment... You be careful. And that's the Matthew 7. He says, beware lest you, when you judge, lest you be judged. And in that context, of Matthew 7, he goes on and makes this comment. You make sure if you go to somebody and you point out some wrong that they are doing, that you are not worried about a speck in their eye while you have a what? A big plank. Literally a beam to a house in your own eye. So I'm going to go and I'm going to go and talk to somebody that I'm going to say, hey listen, you, uh, you, you, whoever you may be, I'm really concerned because I think, you know, I've heard that and I, it's been pointed out and you've said to me, hey, I'm struggling with, uh, let me be very vulgar, I'm struggling with some type of uh, pornography. So I go and talk to that person and unbeknownst, I've got a mistress on the side. I don't, okay? I don't, okay? That would be hypocritical judgment. And that's what was happening in the New Testament, that kind of stuff. That's what was some, of the, some of the preachers were doing. Oh, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to tell you, hey, listen, you need to be really faithful. I've heard, I have had businessmen that come to me and said that so-and-so isn't paying their bills. And you need to go and take care of that bill down at you know, Panera's. You've got a big bill down there. You know, Panera's. And you got to take care of it. And then, in, in my background, I've got, you know, my house mortgage I haven't paid for in six months. Who am I to go and tell you? That's what Matthew 7 is about. He's not saying that we should just ignore everything, but those of us who make judgments, you make sure that before we judge others or examine others, we make sure that our own doorstep is cleaned. And so there's another area. Let me just mention a couple others and get into this text. Okay, you've got to be examining me. You've got to be judging me, not my tuft. Leave it alone, okay? You've got to be examining what I'm speaking about, examining what I say. You have to make judgments on a regular weekly basis. You have got to, not, to, not for the sake of accusing, 
if it's, if it's appropriate, accused. But for the sake of, you've got to examine and determine, am I teaching the Word of God? Got to compare. Biblical judgment. Compare what I am saying to the Word of God. He even says, I speak to you as wise people. Judge what I am saying. This is the Apostle Paul. Writing to a church and say, if you're wise, if you're wise, judge, examine my teachings. Do they fit with the Bible? And with the whole Bible, can I support what I'm saying from the Word of God? Examine it. In fact, he talks about, I, I grew up in Minnesota. And growing up in Minnesota, uh, that area, one of the churches I went to was called Berean Baptist Church there in the Twin Cities. I never understood for a long time, why, does people, why do churches call themselves Berea? Berean church. Where would that come from? I never heard of the towns like that until I got into more Bible study that there was a town in the New Testament called Berea. The people were Bereans. And there's a, mess, there's a passage that talks about them. Paul says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because the Bereans, when I came and preached to them, they examined everything I said. They checked it out by the Word of God. Is this what the Bible said? Is this what the Bible said? No wonder that church took that name Berean. It was the idea that they were going to examine everything by the Word of God. That's a noble name to take. And so he challenges us. He says that you and I, the teachers that we put ourselves under, we should be examining, are they, are they teaching clearly the Word of God? And by the way, not only that, but in 1 Timothy 3, you've not only got to be examining or judging my content, but you've got to be examining, do you not my lifestyle? Yes or no? You've got to make sure that I am living up to the qualifications and requirements of somebody that is teaching the Word of God. So you've got to make some judgments. You've got to make some discerning, wise remarks. But you also have to judge the culture you live in. You've got to examine this. You've got to say, does it match the Word of God? The different things that, that are happening around us. This is, by the way, this is, a, this is probably a shock to some of you. You are spiritual if you judge the culture. You are not anti-spiritual. I write, he says, to that, that it is the spiritual person who examines and compares the things around them with the Word of God. That's spirituality. I know, I know when you do that, I know if you were to go out and you were to st- and, and make a statement that you were to say that um, somebody in polygamy, you were to say that's wrong. You would get hit at work. Others would say to you, how dare you? You think, you, you, how dare you? You are so ungodly, so unspiritual as to make that moral decision. You haven't made the decision. God has made the decision. You aren't making the judgment and saying, you know, I'm setting up the moral code. God has set up the moral code already. You are saying to that person, I am taking the Word of God, letting the Word of God fall in judgment, and they will make you feel like you are you know, the crud of the, of the crop, but you are actually doing a spiritual work by pointing out the moralities of Scripture. And it's going to become more and more unpopular. You are going to be called intolerant. You are going to be called a hate monger. It's not that you hate the individual. You are pointing out the error of their lifestyle choice that it is sin and it violates the moral codes of God who owns us. And so you're pointing it out and reconfirm, re, uh, recomfort your heart. This is a spiritual act that you are doing by standing for what's right. Walk as children of light, examining, seeing what pleases the Lord. It's commanded. You who are spiritual need to make judgments biblically. Compare the culture with the Word of God. Look at it. And then don't forget this judge yourself. 
You are commanded in Scripture to examine yourself and compare yourself to the Word of God. You are to do a self-exam to find out. Okay, why? Because if we would, would judge ourselves, we would not be judged by God Almighty. We wouldn't be chastened. Do you remember this text? Do you know the reason I put this text up? Next Sunday service. Next Sunday service at the Lord's Terry's, in the morning service we're doing communion. And this passage has to do with you before you show up next Sunday morning. It is talking about you judging yourself, examining yourself. Are you living in accord with the Word of God? Your attitude towards others. Your attitude towards worship. When you come and celebrate communion, is that service a time where you can just kind of, okay, I can just get a, get a little bit of rest here? Or am I in the communion service focused on Jesus Christ? Am I preoccupied in the service with trying to keep up with what's on the internet that I can get on my phone while I sit in church? Or am I focused on what Jesus has done? And he says in this context, examine yourself because if you take communion wrong and you are doing it in an unworthy fashion, disrespectful fashion, you bring to yourself damnation. That is physical destruction. He is, God is so serious about this and he is saying, I want you to prevent chastening in your life. Examine yourself. Even examine the way you worship. And do that before you show up next week. He says that we are to dearly beloved cleanse ourselves. We're not supposed to be involved with the scum and the scuzz of the, this world. We're not supposed to act like, look like, talk like in the language and in the gutter. We're not supposed to be involved with, with ungodly entertainment. Those things that are, that, that are unhealthy spiritually. He makes it very clear that we do not have a green light to sin. We're to be living a holy life. It's so clear in the word of God. And so you have to say, wait a minute, by the standard of God's word, am I holy in the way I respond to my kids? Am I holy in the way that I have respect towards my parents? Am I holy the way I talk about other people? Am I holy by forgiving people who have offended me? Am I holy by the way I work this week? Will I give my very best? Will I be a person of integrity and honesty even if they don't want me to? Will I hold to a standard that is one that honors the Lord Jesus Christ? By the way, we should put this in. This is an examination, a judgment that every one of us is supposed to make. He says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. He is talking about, do you offer verifiable proof by the way you live that you are a born-again Christian? You claim it. You grew up in a home that talks about it. But are you offering evidence in your life that you truly are, by their fruits you shall know them, that you truly are born-again, truly, truly a child of God? Is there evidence in your life? And he says, examine. Examine your life. Uh, years ago, they used to make the coins, and they did them different in the days of Paul. They did them different than they do now. Now they have the different metals and parts of metals that are blunt in to make it much more firm. But in Bible days, the metal that they usually would make it out of was soft. And if you look closely, you see some of them have rough edges. What they would do is they would, people in merchants or whoever, they would at times, when the metal came out of the mold, they would cut that away to try to make it, you know, follow, follow the edging a little bit better. Or people who were in store different things or individuals, they would at times trim away as it was getting worn down and they would trim away some of that really, the edge that was getting sharp. Some people would trim it away and they would trim so many coins so as to gather flecks of the coin and eventually make their own coins. There was so much of that that in Athens they had 80 different laws trying to stop that idea of 
of working with the coins. Anyway, so they had these coins and they would, they would take a mold and they would make these coins with the faces and everything and they would stamp it into that metal. And uh, in time, they took some of the different molds and they would, back in those days, they did it up until middle, middle centuries. They would also take another mold, put it in, in, um, in the fire, heat it up, and they would brand somebody. If that person was a thief, they would put the T, if that was the language of the letter, so that they would stand for thief. A murderer, sometimes they would, if they didn't kill him, if it was, uh, if it was um, uh, not premeditated manslaughter, they would mark individuals, or adultery, different things. Do you know what they called those branding irons? Do you know what they called the mold? They called it, back in Bible days, the term was character. Character was the stamp. Whatever it's supposed to be duplicating, that was character. Well, we know what that happened. The term came to be whatever became the sum total of what it looked like. That became character. It was supposed to look like this, but this is what it's looking like. And now we examine character. We look and say, okay, what is your character? What do you look like? What are you molded after? What is your brand? Is it really a brand of following Jesus Christ? Is it a brand that says that says for real, the way I live, my character shows I am, a, I am bought by a price, I belong to Jesus Christ, and I am serving him to the best of my ability. What's your character? What's your brand? Well, he says that that is something we're supposed to be working on. Now, he's talked about this idea of judging. And certain times we are to judge. And he repeats that here in the text. He says, judge this. I want one more area of judgment that he says I want you to do. I want you to judge how your life is impacting other people. Now for sake of time, I need to deal with that tonight. Let me finish out where we're at here this morning. Okay? That he's going to talk about this area of judging. He just says, okay, we are to judge. That is clear in verse, verse 13. We're to make some judgments. But he also says we're not to be judging. That's the beginning of the verse. He says we're not to be, uh, let me rephrase it. Biblical judgment is comparing to Scripture. But being, just plain being judgmental, that's not the same thing. Critical thinking, okay, where I am comparing by the standard of the Word of God, good. But just being a person who just thinks critically all the time, who is negative, who is against others without, without comparing them to a standard. That is wrong. That's what he talks about in Romans 14. In Romans 14, he, when he begins this text, in verse 13 where he says, and that's where I need to get to Romans with you, Romans in 14 verse 13 where he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. No, I want you to stop judging one another anymore. What is he talking about? Who's he talking about? Get the context real quickly. The context goes this way. These believers that he's writing to, they're living for the Lord. This one another are people who are living for the Lord. If you look at the beginning of the passage, they are, some are weak, but they're weak in the faith. They have made some decisions about how they're going to live. And in the areas that they have made decisions, they have concluded. Look at verses 7 and 8. We looked at this last Sunday night. They have said, before the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what I have chosen and I'm confident this is the way God is leading me. That's verses 6, 7, and 8. You can look at it read it. And so he's talking to believers who are submissive to God, who are sensitive to the leading of God. They have some differences between them. Because in some areas that are not morally prescribed in scriptures, they have made some changes in differences in what they believe. You see, there are some in this church that are saying it's not a doctrinal issue, it's not a moral issue. 
But some are saying, I don't want to eat certain foods. There are certain foods I'm not going to eat. Because when, in my background, I was Jewish. And we didn't eat anything that wasn't kosher. Now that I'm a believer, um, I know I can eat anything, but I still want to eat only kosher food. And I'm not going to eat any other type of food. And it's more of an ethical, personal statement with them. There are others who, when they'd go to church, their temple, they could, after church, they could take their animal, get it slaughtered. Afterwards, they could buy some of the meat back, and then they could cook it. And some of the people who used to be involved in that practice said, "Uh uh-uh, I I don't want to eat that meat anymore. Some of that meat that we sell in town, it comes from a temple. And if I buy that meat, I'm supporting that temple worship that doesn't worship real God. I'm supporting something that a priest system, a system where some of the priestesses, part of the worship and when you brought your animal was to have sexual relationships. And I don't want to be involved. I I don't even want the meat that, that that was offered there. And so I'm not going to eat any meat. And some were saying, okay, no meat. Uh, some were saying meat goes because I don't have anything of that. My background doesn't, doesn't affect me that way. And others were saying, hey, wait a minute. There are certain days that we used to observe when we were in that, in that temple worship. There used to be days we worshiped when I was in that Jewish system. Do I still need to observe those days or should I just stay away from it totally? Does it, you know, should I, everybody took off work on such and such a day. Maybe I shouldn't take off work because then I'm celebrating that holiday and some were doing it and some weren't and so Paul writes and he says this is where it's happened. Some of you in the church are judging one another over those personal issues based upon your past experience and as a result you're saying um, you know if you don't do exactly the same thing I do with food you're not as spiritual as me. If you don't do the same thing I do when it comes to those religious, uh, those holidays, you're not as spiritual as me. But it made a big difference, their background. It made a big difference in how they looked at things based upon their personal experience. And Paul is going to write this whole two chapter, three chapter section is saying some of this stuff isn't moral. Some of it is very personal. How does it affect you? How did it, what was your past like? What is your affiliation with it? And it's not the moral issues of what's spelled out for, you know, marriage, what's spelled out for integrity. This is very personal, very private. And so he says, okay, the divisions are arising and some of you are getting really nasty with one another. To the point that you won't even talk to each other. You're condemning one another. You're mocking. You're ridiculing. And so he's got to write and he says that's enough. Stop. Stop those areas that are very personal that aren't a moral issue. Just stop it. Stop the division within the church. Now over the years the problem hasn't gone away. There is still within churches a lot of disagreement over a lot of things. The things where we talked about last week documented instruments in church. Should there be an organ? Should there be a piano? And for years they didn't. For a period of time, back in the 1800s, the big issue in a lot of churches was whether ladies should sing in the service or not. And there was churches and people that believed the ladies should never sing when the men are singing. And they based that upon 1 Corinthians 11, the ladies are to be silent in the church. And then it became issues like, well, should the ladies even sit near the men? Because some said if the ladies sit near the men, the men might get distracted, so let's make the ladies sit at other parts. And then it's developed over a period of time, clothing. Do churches today ever make big issues over what clothes and colors? I was reading John Dalton. He was in the 1800s. He's a British chemist. He's the first one that started to do testing with um, colorblind 
situations. And he's the first one that started investigating this to say different people have different color blindnesses, uh, you know, or they have color blindness and some of them even different colors. And then over the years all the studies. John Dalton was a Quaker. And as a Quaker, what color of clothes did they wear? Oh, totally black. Totally black all the time. Totally black or white. So it was very black. Clothing was black and white with them. One of his co-workers for a joke knowing that he was colorblind for certain colors, changed his knee-high stockings, you know, because they would wear those, I, I don't know, the, the knickers, the shorts, and then they would have those high stockings in the 1800s. So one of them said, okay, you're done with work, you're getting changed in your office, and then you're going to head to your prayer meeting. And he changed out his black stockings for a bright red. The man had no clue. The man went to his church service with bright red stockings into a Quaker church service. That is not the last church that had an uproar over somebody's color of clothes. You know, it happens. People have these things, and, and you can read some of these things that keep on coming up. And so they're not moral issues, and he says, stop condemning if people have a different standard than you. Stop it. And he gives a reason why. Now again, I've give, I, last week I dealt with this text, and I'll deal with it more in, in verse-by-verse exposition. But just pausing and stopping, let me reiterate where we stopped last Sunday night. Stop being condemning one another over some of those personal standards that are not a moral issue in scriptures that are not specifically spelled out. Stop it. He says, stop condemning people. And he gives them the reason why. Look at it. And here we'll, we'll, we'll just finish up with this, these thoughts, okay, from what he goes. He says, verse 10, why are you judging one another? Or why do you set at naught? You, you just, you will have nothing to do with somebody who has a different viewpoint on TV than you. You will have nothing to do with them. Why would you do that? They have a different viewpoint. They, their, their family, the girls in the family, they wear dresses all the time. And you don't think they need to. Why would you say, I will have nothing to do with those person that they chose that for their family standard? He says, stop it. Just stop it. And he goes on, he makes a comment that is very, very insightful. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What's he mean by that? He means it very clear that other believers don't answer to you and me, they answer to God. Oh, let me add another thought. You and I as believers, we answer to God. We have no right to be judging on some of these personal issues. We are not talking about church standards. Please do not get, do not judge in a wrong way, what we're saying here. We're not, talking, we're not talking standards that we as a body choose for presentation's sake. We are talking about personal standards that have to do with what you opt to do as an individual in the privacy of your home or your family, and others are saying, oh, wait a minute, you, you, uh, you watch you know, certain programs and I don't watch them. How dare you to watch those programs? Oh, by the way, Whatever, whoever you are that watches any of us, watches a program, we should have filtered that already by what we said earlier. Is this program pleasing to the Lord? Okay? And so after that filter is done, then there's still differences. And the differences could be because of background or whatever, and some get all upset, they get uptight, and he's saying, they don't answer to you. You aren't going to be their judge, and they're not going to be your judge. And keep this in mind, you're going to answer to a bigger judge, so be careful what you do. 
And he goes on and talks about the Bema Seat of Christ. The Bema Seat of Christ is the judgment of Christians. It is mentioned in this passage that we shall appear, he says, for the judgment. The word literally in verse 10 is the Bema Seat. Just to explain, what do we know about this Bema Seat? It's going to happen sometime soon in the future after Jesus takes us to heaven. It is going to be a judgment of the believers. He says in verse 12, look at the passage, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Every one of us all by ourselves, is going to stand before God Almighty. And we're going to give answer. We're going to give account of ourselves. The judgment that is going to take place is not to determine if you go to heaven or not. You're already there. Your judgment to get into heaven or not has to do with your relationship to Jesus Christ. Once we are in Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to them in Christ Jesus. This isn't a determination of whether or not I get to stay in heaven. I'm born again. I've asked Christ. I've got eternal life. But this is an examination that is going to be, going to be looking and saying, what have I done for Christ? Not whether I deserve to be there. None of us does. But the idea is what have I served and done for Jesus Christ to gain a reward or lose a reward? By the way, there's a whole other judgment in the Bible that's called the great white throne judgment. That's a judgment to determine whether you are be able to be staying in heaven or not. This is going to be another future judgment. When it takes place, everybody who is not born again, who is not called upon Christ, will stand before him and the determination will be made, did you ever, or let me show you, when you never and took the opportunity to get born again and they will end up in the lake of fire. It's a scary judgment. It's a huge judgment, but it's one that he's going to examine your works, your life, in total, what you said, bring it to, to show you that you and I are not righteous people. None of us deserve to get into heaven, but because you never called upon Christ to be your Savior, you're not going to be allowed in heaven. And it's a very clear judgment that's talked about in Revelation. But back to the great, to the, uh, the uh, Bema Seat judgment, it's going to be what did you do since you were saved? You got saved 10 years ago. You got saved 3 years ago. You got saved 30 years ago. What have you been doing since that time? Now in this judgment that takes place for believers, he's going to say some of us will rejoice and some of us won't. He talks about the rejoicing when he says some are going to say, you know, this is great, enter into the joy of the Lord because you have done well. But in the New Testament he rewards us. He says that some will suffer loss. There are some born again believers who didn't focus on the right things in their service and they're still going to be in heaven but they will not have anything to show for the life that they live because they lived it selfishly. He writes about this in John's epistle where he says, be careful that you don't lose part of the reward that you live to earn everything that God wants to give you, that God skilled you to, that he gifted you to be able to use your gifts, your talents for his glory. Be careful, don't lose it. And we understand that. People get involved in the Olympics and they work hard. Some are rejoicing. Some, they didn't get the gold medal. Okay, they were still in the Olympics but they don't have the same reward as others. And it has a tremendous impact upon them. So you and I, to have the joyful experience when we stand before Christ, what do we focus on? Very simple. Here's what you got. Focus on things that are eternal. The things that will last. Every man's work is going to be tried by fire and some will be wood, he says some is going to be the wood, hay, and stubble. Some will be gold, silver, precious stones. Focus on that stuff that lasts. Souls. Purity godly lifestyle, service through your local church. He says that is really important. Those are the things that will last as well. Leading your kids to Christ. Having that legacy that is impacting. Doing things for the right reason. 
Not just going to church isn't going to be rewarding. He's going to say, wait a minute, I'm going to judge and examine why did you go? I'm not, going to, I'm not just going to examine the souls that you were impacting and trying to lead to Christ, but why did you do it? I'm going to examine your motives. Why did you do it? If they were the right motives, I have a reward for you. If not, you're going to be in heaven, but you, you'll see that you could have had rewards, but they're not going to be given. He's going to examine the right way we did things. The right way in regards to were we pure? Were we self-controlled in the way that we confronted somebody? Were we self-controlled in the way that we served? Or did I lose my cool when I'm taking and trying to share the Word of God? He's going to examine not only that area, but the right way of how we handle trials. In the trials that came in your life, did you respond the right way when there, was, when there was an illness, a death? Did you respond the right way when there was a financial collapse? He's going to examine the right way of how we conducted ourselves. When it comes to the area of, of also day by day, waiting, watching, living like he's coming back. We talked about it last week. Living as if we're leaving idea. He's going to examine me. And one of the examinations, because I'm a pastor, is did I do the job the right way? Did I lord it over you or did I do it just for the money's sake? I did the job, but what was my reason? How did I do it? He's going to examine it and say, reward or no reward, did you do it the right way? He's going to examine it as well, all those areas. And it comes down to this, very, to this simple thing. You and I in this life, who are we living for? Years ago, they have this saying that goes, you're wearing your heart on your sleeve. It came from Valentine's Day in the 1800s. Back in those days, Valentine's week, the guys in America and Britain did not just give flowers or chocolate. They also gave, they gave, uh, they put a, a little slip of paper and they put it on their sleeve with their girlfriend's name on it. And they'd walk around and they would display, this is the person that I really care about. Let me ask you a question. What's your brand? I care about Christ. I really want to serve Christ. Is it true? Is it really true that your Christianity, not just because you came here this morning, but when you leave here, when you go to school, are you really Christ? Are you really serving Him? Do you show your love and devotion to Him by the way you serve throughout this week? By the areas that you're focusing on? Do you show your love and devotion for Christ by the way you treat other people without the judgmental attitude, without the tearing them down? Or are you one of those that discourages others in their service for Christ because they don't do it the way you did it? I warn you that according to 1 Corinthians 3, the text that talks about you and I and our judgment warns that we do not hurt the body of Christ lest there be judgment for it. He challenges us that what we should be doing is encouraging others and building up others. You've got to examine your heart. I've got to examine my life. And I've got to be careful that when it comes to judging, I'm doing the right type of judgment and I'm avoiding the judgmental attitude of just being nitpicky and making sure everybody does everything exactly like I do. That's wrong. Now there's a whole bunch more here that the rest of this chapter to me is so challenging that I invite you to come back this evening. But before we wrap up, we have to ask ourselves, who are we modeling after? Is it Christ and are you true to the claims?